we should all be thinking of ourselves as our own investors, right? It's not free money. We're writing a check with our life force, our energy, our time. We've got only so many hours in the day, so many years on this planet. And if we're putting it into this business, we better treat our business like we're the most important investor we have. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. Believe it or not, I released my first episode one year ago to celebrate International Women's Day. A big thank you to each one of my listeners. I appreciate all of you. I wouldn't be able to continue podcasting for the last 52 weeks without your support. The goal of her CEO journey has always been to bring the inspirational conversation with other women entrepreneurs and at the same time to educate women entrepreneurs so we can amplify financial equality among us. If you and I are not yet connected on LinkedIn, please connect with me. I would love to hear from you. And if you are new here, welcome. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I take you behind the scenes and into the inner workings of our businesses, sharing the good, the bad, and the truth about the money we have made or lost and recover as entrepreneurs. And all because we want you to see how you can live a freedom lifestyle using the power of finance to build your business dream. The month of March is also the celebration of Women's History Month for the US, UK, and Australia. All of the celebration are a reminder for us, women entrepreneurs, to dream big, take risks, and be bold. Don't give up your dream because of fear. Back in the days, many women didn't have the option to earn and to learn on their own terms and in their own ways. We have this option now. Let's be thankful for the women and men who came up before us, who pushed society to allow women to have the power to decide what we want to become. Together, let's create a world where we are no longer afraid of wanting to build a profitable and sustainable business that fuels the life we want to live. Our businesses give us the opportunity to create jobs for other women, to fund other women-founded businesses, and to contribute to the national as well as global economy. I want to remind you again, in March, I will be running a contest, and I would love you to vote one of her CEO journey who inspires you the most only for those episodes released during the first quarter of 2020. The winner for the most inspirational journey will be announced in April. It will mean so much for me and for my guests to know our conversation help your journey. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes released this year, I want you to head on over to christinashahli.com right now and hit the subscribe button on your favorite app. For my guest today, Christine Parakis, fear was never an issue. She lived an adventurous and successful life. She started and ran 10 successful businesses. 
learning along the way, and growing as an entrepreneur. Then, after launching her first best-selling book, she faced a Category 5 hurricane which almost killed her. Combining her experience as an entrepreneur and this life-changing event, Christine has created seven resilient strategies that any leader can use to get through whatever your disruptive environment throws at you. And she shared this in her new book, The Resilient Leader, Life-Changing Strategies to Overcome Today's Turmoil and Tomorrow's Uncertainty. Let's find out Christine's CEO journey. What did she learn from weathering Category 5 hurricanes? How did she recover from this life-threatening event? Christine Parakis, welcome to her CEO journey. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I know we're going to have a great time. (laughs) Yes, I know we will. So I know you have a lot of experience, 10 businesses. You sold one in 2016. You moved to British Virgin Island. You experienced two big hurricanes in the British Virgin Island, which we're going to talk about. And then now you have the Kristen Paracas Global. So I really want to focus on your last business before you sold that one. What type of business is that, Christine? So it was a market research firm for the entertainment industry, and it was an exponentially growing company. It was really amazing experience. Okay. So how did you get into that business? Can you share your journey there? Yeah. You know, it's, I, it's how I got into several businesses actually, because I've been a lawyer and advising clients for many years in the entertainment industry and elsewhere and in business largely. And clients have invited me in to come and be a COO managing partner type of person because they wanted full access to all of my skills rather than just have me as a lawyer. And so in that case, this was a client of 20 years. I've been involved in all of his business development and helped him get movies produced and different jobs and things. And when he was ready to make the entrepreneurial leap, we worked together to craft that opportunity and to make it happen. So when you entered that business, when was that? What year was it? It was 10 years ago, actually. (laughs) Oh, okay. So 10 years ago. So 2009. Okay. And then when you say begin with the end in mind, what do you mean? What were your thought process in that regard? Well, and it's what I say to clients still today. You know, when we think, you see all this lean startup conversation, right? People are, you know, they got these ideas, especially young people, they're going to throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. And they're planning to use other people's money. So they're not, you know, if it works, it works great. They don't really understand what it takes to have longevity and actually create a legacy. So I'll tell people, you better be thinking the end game here because you're going to become obsolete. You're going to have competition that's better financed and better equipped and capitalized than you. And so what's your real long-term strategy for this business? Because whatever it's going to be, if you're going to still be in business, it's going to look very different than what you have today. And so you're building something that has value or you're working for the rest of your life. You choose. Okay. So when you started that business 10 years ago, what were you thinking about the end? How people should prepare for that? At that time, my partner had been through as an employee, his company had an acquisition, which I would consider an exit, right? It was changing management and going to new owners. 
And so we had an idea of what value we needed to build up for the company so that we could get a top multiplier for the business and maximize its value. You know, there's a sweet spot in terms of a business, right? Where you've put in all the heavy lifting, where it has certain value and the marketplace would give you a recognition for that value, which is what the X factor is, right? Every industry has a multiplier. So, you know, you're getting paid for the future value of your business because of all the hard work you've put in in the early years, if you've had a startup. And so that's the idea was to reach that maximum value where we become a sexy acquisition so that the new owners would be able to create more value, but also we would get paid for the value that we created. You built that company actually from zero to 10 million, right? In four years. How do you scale that business? Because there's got to be a step, maybe from zero to six figure first and then seven and then eight. Like what was the process there? Well, this was an exceptional business and I've had other businesses that we've grown rapidly and uh, and exponentially, but this one, we made our first million in the first quarter and we had to have a staff of a hundred within the first few months or a year, less than a year. And so, you know, by the time, you know, four years later, we were on 160 employees and multi-million dollar business. And so it didn't have short uh, steps. It had a short, a fast runway to get to that revenue. And we just had good fortune, hard, 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 hard work. My partner was a brilliant biz dev guy and I did everything else and he had me. So I was de facto, well, I was the COO and general counsel, but also, you know, de facto CFO, but I never use that title because that would be crazy. But I had to set up all the infrastructure and the systems and all of that. So that kind of growth could also crush a business, as you can imagine. And when we're talking about exits and multipliers and all this stuff, there's a huge difference between revenue and profit and then cash, right? And so as a lawyer, you know, I'm one of those rare beasts that actually loves numbers. You know, there's not a lot of us out there that are not CFO or finance people. And so I just understood very well how the whole story of our business was in our numbers. And I understood from a real visceral gut-wrenching experience of how important cash flow is. That is like a tremendous growth in a very short time period. Yeah. You know, you have 160 employees like within a year. And then a lot of people are saying this. They are saying that you want to see holes or breakdown in your business grow fast. Then you will, because you're not prepared and then you start seeing the holes and then cash flow can be an issue. So can you share with me, How is that process? Like, because you are a number person, what did you do? So here's a worst case scenario situation that other people I'm sure would experience. We had great Fortune 100 type clients that were actually bankable contracts in terms of our uh, revenue side, but they paid 60 to 90 to 100 days out. And our vendors, of course, wanted to be paid either up front or within 30 days. So you do the math, right? There's a huge gap in there of how am I going to make payroll for those 30, 60, 90 days in between revenue and expenses. And so (laughs) in the beginning, you know, we were scrambling. First of all, you know, we started with a bootstrapping situation. We opened up all our bank accounts, retirement accounts, everything, and threw all the money in the business. 
And then we had to make sure in the beginning when we had cash, if we had a big job that we got paid early for, I would pay all the vendors very quickly and create a history with the vendors so that they understood that if I needed extra time, if there was going to be a gap, they had, we had the foundation of trust because we're a new company and we didn't have a history, an operating history. So we weren't going to get good terms from the outset. So by setting up good relations with our suppliers, then we could use that when we needed it for the extra courtesies for the extensions. And I was in constant collection mode when I needed to be. I used other um, executives at my company to help me with collections to make sure they understood the importance of certain clients had to be paying up front because they were high risk. Smaller companies, whereas the big companies that owed us the, you know, that had the larger revenue percentages, they could do what they wanted because they were always going to pay. It was just a matter of how quickly. And then we would be able to get peppered throughout certain clients that would pay very quickly. You know, like Amazon was a great payer as an example. Because at the end of the day, with a company that big, with 160 employees, payroll is always a burden for any company. You know it. All <laughs> the fixed costs are always a burden, especially a lot of startup. What would be your advice in terms of putting a financial process? Well, I'm teaching them to run a very lean operation to evaluate every decision they make that's going to cost them as against what do we have to do in what order. So like with a startup, first of all, we have to prove that this, this product or service has a market value that somebody wants it, right? Because nobody's going to invest the kind of money you need for a long runway if you can't prove to them that the market wants it. So you've got to be gearing every single action step, decision, cash flow expenditure towards proving that there's a market for this product or service. And then you can go out to investors and say, hey, we've got this much traction here or this much stickiness. We've got repeat users. Because the beginning are angels, right? Those are your friends and family. Everybody expects you to go you know, empty your credit card balances, your bank accounts, your friends and family bank accounts. Do whatever it takes, right? That's what you have to do in the beginning. Then you're going to start having people look at, okay, well, do you have revenue? Do you have the... Has someone shown interest in this product? And then even at that, I've got clients who are in, you know, have $20,000 a month in revenue and they're still not paying themselves anything because it keep reinvesting to grow the business. You know, thankfully they're in that position that they can. And I'm trying to help the other clients who are saying, we want to get paid and we think we should have this. And if someone's going to bring in 7 million, we're going to use a million of it to pay people. And I'm like, you better rethink that because that could be a, a tough conversation to have with investors. And then, you know what, like, here's the thing, like, I know a lot of people out there, they don't pay themselves, right? And then for those people or for those entrepreneurs who have that exit strategy in mind, that's a real problem. Because as you know, when you do a cash flow projection, a forecast for investor, when you're going to pitch to them, they want to look at everything, at revenue and expenses. It's not only about the revenue, right? Because at, the end, of the, at the end of the day, they want to see what is the free cash flow that you're going to make over the lifetime period that you are I'm buying here, right? And then what was the cash flow in the past, right? Because they're buying the future. An investor is buying the return of investment in the future. If you forgot that one piece CEO salary or the executive management salary, 
that's mean you basically overvaluing your company. Right. And you have to find that right. It's again, a sweet spot, right? So with your bootstrapping, it's your money. You know, my, my partner and I paid ourselves very well market rate, you know, when we could, and when we couldn't, we didn't, right. When the cash flow wasn't there, we didn't. So we had a baseline that was below, well below market, but when we had the cash, we would pay ourselves up. So that was in the books. By the time we were positioned for investment, Mm -hmm. we were earning market salaries and the C-suite was taken care of. So we weren't undervalued or overvaluing our business at that yep. time. Yep. But that if you're taking in other people's money early before there's revenue, yep. then you're not going to get yourself a market rate salary for a while. So you've got to find that moment, like the angels, you're not going to use their money that way because you can't get off the ground. And then you're going to have revenue and it's going to build slowly. And hopefully you can start paying yourself maybe a stipend. Maybe you can cover your rent, quit your day job. And you find Find that moment in the business's his life where you can start paying yourself some amount of money. First, it may be a token or some stipend, and then it becomes a small amount of money to where you can slowly get up to maybe close to market. But most of the time, you know, I used to have a philosophy, and in a bootstrapping situation, I think it's really important not just to make sure the valuation looks right, but also for business owners to take care of themselves, right? Because you couldn't, you can't be starving and grow a business, right? So you've got to either have a day job, have another source of income, or pay yourselves out of revenue. Depending on the circumstances, you're going to choose one, but you're going to have to live or else there is no business. So there's that on the one hand. And then there's the competing interest of investors who want you to be putting all your money, effort, energy, time into the business. And they don't want you to be paying yourself a market rate. So you've got competing interests and you have to balance them out and find the right timing to increase that salary and then you know be able to be well positioned so investors love you and they want what you have and they'll invest in you or they'll buy. But... The thing is that a lot of people think about getting an investor in, you know, to invest money equals to success. But, you know, I think you probably learned this from, you know, from your client as well. They're thinking, oh, you know what? If I get this millions of money, I'm going to be able to grow. But is that the truth, though? Not always, right? You're not only are you going to be hamstrung, right? They're going to keep you. They're going to be looking over your shoulder. They may be telling you who you can hire and fire. They may be replacing you, right? We get we see that happen. Mark Zuckerberg is a rare example of somebody who had no experience who's still running his company today. But even Google just recently replaced their C-suite. Well, they've done it in different stages, right? But Larry and Sergey are out. You know, we brought this as far as we need to go. They they don't need money. You know, they don't need the job. They can go focus on other things. But there's a point at which, and that's why, you know, me, I was doing the CFO job, the CFO job in quotes, because we didn't, couldn't afford to hire a CFO in the beginning, right? Then, you know, at some point I have to replace myself, you know, and put someone in. That was the perfect timing. So understanding that, yeah, it's not, going to be, it's the most expensive thing you do, you know, and equity is something that people sometimes fail to understand, especially in the early stages in startups, they write equity checks like it's free money. Oh, come in, we'll give you equity, you know? And I go through with clients who come to me after the very beginning and I say, okay, why does this person have 5% of your company? Why does this person have this much or that much? And I say, we have to renegotiate because they've, they're long gone. 
they maybe they spent a few months or a year before you got to me and now your cap table looks crazy and an investor is going to come in and say why am i partnering with people who haven't had anything to do with the business for 3 years <laughs> you know and so you got to clean that stuff up because they're looking at who you've given equity to and really we're talking about this in terms of investors but you know i've done an article about this like we should all be thinking of ourselves as our own investors right it's not free money we're writing a check with our life force our energy our time we've got only so many hours in the day so many years on this planet and if we're putting it into this business we better treat our business like we're the most important investor we have very interesting point christine because okay you always hear in personal finance that manage your portfolio okay but <laughs> i don't think any business owner ever think that that business it's their portfolio it's their investment right. think about that right? right like if you take all this personal finance advice about managing your portfolio and then you are a business owner the first thing that you need to manage it's your own portfolio before you invest on anybody else right You'll spend all this time analyzing whether you buy a stock or not, yes. but you won't think about this business no. as the same kind of thing. Because you put your sweat equity and your dollars equity into that business, and then when you bring in other investors, trust me, because I worked for public companies before, and then I know when shareholders comes in, forget about having control. It's all about the shareholders. And then that's why you see a lot of people you like Google like after that they're out because you know what they're a true entrepreneurs they don't want to be controlled. Right? right? Think about well, that's, that. Well that was my thing too and it's always been the truth of my businesses is I've got a runway of about a 0 to 4 or 5 years. 4 years is the, probably okay. the longest, you know, where I'm really going to be the most effective person you could have in your business as a uh-huh. manager. you know and then we need somebody who's really strong at an ongoing concern that can take it into the multiple eight figures and beyond right who's in the day to day there's nothing i hated more than you know having to focus on payroll and and 401k and filing the reports and dealing with hr issues and you know the stuff of of a big company which is you know a small company but it feels big <laughs> you have big company issues when you have 100 plus people you work oh, for oh yes work oh definitely yeah. what i want to bring back in you know when we talk about cash flow projection and then i don't know if you if you have this experience a lot of business owners or even a lot of company they forget that finance is like a bucket of every single process within a business And and you probably seen it. Okay, for example, if you're dealing with suppliers, your su- supply chain management, that's going to impact your expenses. That's going to impact your accounts payable. How do you manage that, right? And then, you know, your HR, you have 160 employees in your last companies, right? That 160, you know, whatever decision like the culture of the company that you want to be in, want to create, what type of personality of the employees You have more headache it's going to give you extra cost no matter what retrain you know new employees like everything it's being captured on a financial right. statements and then i don't think a lot of people understands that so how is you and your business partners in that company collaborate right basically decide the exit strategy on that partnership 
Did you get involved in that? Did you look at the financial perspective from there? <laughs> you know, if I knew then, right? I mean, it's the classic. Somebody asked me, what was your mindset when you were in the hurricanes? You know, I'd like, oh, what mindset? I was out of control. I had no idea what my mind was saying or doing. I was on autopilot, you know? And when you're in that company, when you're in the situation, what we tend to do, because, and this is why I do what I do, right? In that situation, mm-hmm. I was there to throw all my life force, blood, sweat, tears, you know, with my partner who I loved like family, you know, we would do everything, you know, work day and night, whatever it takes. I moved into his house in the first three weeks of the startup because we were working so closely together. And you, so you're in the thick of it and you don't have the distance. You don't have the clarity of the 30,000 foot view. And I looked around and I never found anybody that I felt really understood my journey of what it takes to run a business and to get, you know, to do what I had to do, the pressures that I was under and the position that I was in that I could rely on from the outside. So we didn't have, you know, today we've had those, you know, we, we have a lot of clear communication now and over the years, you know, and, and at the time it was, you don't know with this level of clarity until you've been through it. And Mm -hmm. so really understanding this is my sweet spot. I can come in, I can help you start a business Mm -hmm. or get it all the way up to this level of revenue. Mm -hmm. And then we've got to be looking to replace me. It's hard when you're really an entrepreneur. My last job, which was more than 20 years ago, it took three people to replace me. And I don't say that as a, as a humble brag. It's a, you know, it's what the, what we end up taking on. So my partner would have had a very hard time replacing me at any point in those first four years because I was handling so much. No, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I was the best at any of it, but I was good at getting it off the ground and managing it to keep it in the air and putting things in place that were solid so that it could be taken over. Mm -hmm. So it's being able to have that clarity of what are you best at? Who's the best person? And setting aside your ego to a title or a role or whatever that is and say, we've got to get the best people into the best roles to take this to the level it needs to go. And to be able to go into a relationship and say, this is going to be temporary, or I'm going to have this much of great value. And then maybe we'll go start something else, or we'll take this into the entrepreneurial level. And I'll, I'll take a different role. But as, in terms of the operations person, that was the place where my uh, most effectiveness, greatest value would start to decline. Did you even have a partnership agreement? Oh yeah, absolutely. I come from the law background and yeah. you know, I, I tell people all the time, we do contracts as a way of honoring relationships. Mm-hmm. And so even with people who are my closest friends, I put retainer agreements in place as a lawyer, you know, when I was mm-hmm. on my pr- own practice, I would make sure that everybody understood because we're honoring each other. You know, I never had a collections problem or an issue with my billing or anything because people really understood. And I always over-delivered. So yeah, we always had that clarity. Again, we're thinking with the long-term strategy of an exit, you've got to put these things in place so that when people come in and pull up all the covers, you know, go through once a due diligence process with a prospective investor, lender, partner, you will have your doors open, your drawers pulled out, you know, there's no secrets. They're going to see your dirty underwear, you know, <laughs> forgive me for that graphic, but, no, but- you know, they're going to see everything. <laughs> You can't hide. No, you cannot hide. If you want money, (laughs) you want money from somebody as, you know, from investor or from lender, 
you better be ready to uncover every single thing because due diligence is intense from the law, law lawyer perspective, agreement perspective. <laughs> The accountants, the, the finance accountants, people, the finance, everybody. Like, yeah. And then <laughs> I, I still remember, like, I don't know how many times you have to change the cash flow projection. How many times right? you have to look at your long-term five years plan? Like, it's, it's insane. Just it, that's right? why when people haven't gone through that, I don't think they realize what those really mean. Yeah, I just got the other day, I got a spreadsheet for um, clients that are raising money. And I said, well, how did you make this decision? Where are your assumptions, right? Because it's not just the numbers. You got to tell people, why did you assume that? Why did you think you were going to get this or that? Is that being uh, really aggressive? Are you being super optimistic? You know, you got to tell, you got to justify everything. Yes. And then, you know, I was working for, with a client and then she said, well, you know, um, my growth has been 35 to 40% over the last three years, you know, and then should I use that for the current year? I'm like, well, okay, you need to go back a little bit and then see, is it really like, how are you going to go grow 40% like this? Year? Right. Huge numbers. I, Huge I had a business number, like that right? too. <laughs> how yep. are you going to grow that before you said you want to grow 40%? Okay. Back up that 40%. Okay, historically, it's like that, right? But it doesn't mean that going forward is going to be like that. Like in 2020, we've been hearing about recession, okay? How is that going to impact you? Right. Right? What about your marketing strategy? How do you get your lead? How does your marketing strategy really work? And then if you can prove to me that 40% is reasonable with all the marketing strategy that you're going to bring in people leads and then the conversion rate that you have, okay, I will accept 40%. But before you tell me it's 40% and then let's just do 40%, you need to go back and then really think. And then I love what you said about, yes, where is the assumption? Nice. <laughs> if you don't have the assumption, like, and then if it's not logical, how can you say that it is what it is? And then going back to the investor thing, right? Like they will uncover every single thing. They will question every single number on your projection, every single number. And, you know, one of the things you bring up that, you know, I thought we should talk about a bit is that people look at that 40%, you know, I grew, I was a young company, you know, entrepreneurs and small business owners tend not to understand the S curve of business growth, right? So you're struggle, 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 and then you start to hit a stride and you grow, 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 super steep climbing, and then it levels off. And so they think that that 40% is just going to repeat. I I was in a business like that. We did five years of 40% growth year after year, but it wasn't going to stay that way because we had all these initiatives that we put in place. We vertically integrated the company and what they don't understand because they remember those years of 40% growth is that a 10% change, which is 20 to 22% profit margin, for example, is a huge impact on the business. If you just do 10% more lead generating, 10% more conversion, 10% more in transactions, if you raise your prices just 10%, you will have a huge huge impact overall in the business, but they shoot for the stars thinking, well, we got to have 40% growth, which is crazy. No one will believe you, you know? This is where going back to the long-term planning, because you're only looking at it from the revenue growth perspective, 
right? Right. What about all the marketing strategy that you're going to put in place? What about all the investment that you are going to put to achieve your goal? For example, like, you know, this one client, they want to, wants to open a store, right? Like, and then that mm-hmm. is like an investment that you need to think about, right? Like the first and last month rent, right? And then how is that going to help overhead, you? inventory, exactly. Yes, yeah. Per, how is that going to impact the whole picture? You cannot just thinking about revenue grow, but forgetting all the other, other investment because at the end of the day, like you said, it's your profit and your right. cash flow. It's your positive cash flow that is really so critical on that. You sold that business and then you moved to BFI. Right. Yes, I, I got to do some things that I've always been passionate about. I got my boat captain's license. I was delivering boats off the eastern seaboard. I've been a lifelong mariner and a professional yacht racer and sailor all my life. And so I was just excited to have time, money, inclination, energy. And I went and did these things and ended up literally delivering a boat to Tortola in the British Virgin Islands. And I just fell in love with the island. I felt a big, giant, warm embrace, you know, things that were hard for others in the immigration process became easy for me. It was just the doors were open and you know, you're in the right place when things go that well. Okay. So here's the thing. So you basically sold your business and then you didn't start any, any more business during that period of time you over in BFI. Well, for a short period, no, I had some, um, I did do a few things. I had launched an online business advisory program that is exists today. I've had, um, I was licensing out, um, software. I was bringing in a team of coaches to work for a small business under me. And, you know, I had a few things in place that I was working on my first book, which I got out in that timing. So that was the entrepreneur's essential roadmap. That was its own big beast, you know, that we worked really hard on and and managed to get into a um, bestseller in Amazon on a day and a half of launch. It was very exciting. So it was really, for somebody who's not working, I was really busy. (laughs) I do want to ask you about the hurricane and then your upcoming book, which is related to the hurricane. It's scary. (laughs) How has that changed you, Christine? I love telling these stories and us talking about things I've learned from my experiences in the past. And, you know, they're so formative, but this experience of being trapped in a hurricane, the most powerful hurricane to hit the Atlantic basin, tearing the roof off my house, burying me alive in what I call the wind coffin, where for almost 24 hours, you know, life becomes before and after. And it wasn't just the storm, it was the aftermath of surviving without electricity, running water, telecoms, the whole bit. And with my literal survival at stake and everything that I'd built up, I talked about all that stuff, right? I'd done and I'd had going and was, you know, partnerships and everything was happening and it just gets wiped out. You know, that's how fleeting everything is. And I know that people out there who are listening won't understand, maybe haven't ever been and hope they won't be in a hurricane of that proportion. But we've all had what I call category five level experiences whether it's death, divorce, financial distress, business failure, you know, there's so many things that happen to us in the life or in business that feel so out of control like that, that we're just powerless against. And so my whole life experience to that point, I would say at a different level was sort of 
mindless oblivious. You know, you talk about mindset, right? And when you get down to how am I going to find water or food or get rescued, I might be here and die, you know, and then you've got to really take stock. And it was those experiences that taught me that level of leadership and resilience strategies that I've learned since then and have realized I've been using all my life, but just really had to amp it up. And so that's what became the subject of my next book. And that's the seven barometers of resilience that I introduced in the book. So, you know, that happened in 2016, right? September 17, 6th, 17. Oh, 2017. Yeah. So right. when you say you buried alive, so you, your house basically collapsed? The top floor was destroyed and I was in a sheltered space on the bottom floor with a ceiling that was pouring through, you know, everything was coming apart. Yes. But I had no exit. So it was a moment of realization where I recognized I was not getting out of this. I didn't know how I didn't have any tools. I was alone in this storm. And it took months to realize I didn't know anybody else who'd weathered that storm alone. And this was the biggest lesson that I learned. And it was really the thing I talked about earlier about why I do what I do for others is because I don't ever want anyone to be alone in the storms of their businesses and life. And so there I was, you know, professional mariner, I've been a professional rescuer, ski patrol, you name it. I can save lives, literally. I've navigated businesses, boats, and people to reach their destinations. And I'm feeling naively, ignorantly overconfident (laughs) Mark Twain says, all we need is confidence and ignorance and success is sure. And I had plenty of both. And so I went home from watching the last weather reports with friends. Everybody went off with someone else or with people and I was alone. And so that moment when you realize, I don't know what to do. I don't have a plan. I don't have any way of reaching anybody. I don't know who's out there and who's survived. You could go into utter panic and be completely immobilized And I found the one thing I could do. And I would ask anybody who's listening, what would you do if you had no telecoms, no people, no internet, no way to, you know, no modern conveniences to solve a problem? In that 24 hours, when you were like basically in that small space, buried, waiting for a rescuer, you didn't even know if a rescuer was going to I don't know if anyone would come. I wasn't in a place where there was foot traffic. I didn't know what the conditions were. Everybody on my whole hillside lost their homes. You know, their uh, roofs were blown off. 85% of the housing was destroyed. So, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in the second half of the storm and for the hours in the night that we had to get through. And so the only thing I had control over was that moment when the panic starts to rise, I knew that I could figure out a way to make this storm mean something I could learn from it. So I could take a piece of paper and a pen and start writing. I couldn't even believe you thought about that because I would be freaking out. Well, that was the choice, right? I could curl up in a ball in the fetal position and just start crying and, you know, you know, end up who knows what, maybe someday someone would come and find me there or I could take some action. And it's really, you know, we all have that turning point, that moment when we realize I could just collapse into this 
or I could just take a, write a few notes. So I'd start making lists. And I, I tell people, this is kind of where the book started, right? It was that moment of writing where I, I made lists of things that I do right, things that I make, mistakes that I made, things that I learned, what actually was happening. And because the truth of the matter is no matter what the storm is, what the category five situation, there'll be another storm. That's the nature of life. You know, things happen. And so if we can take the experiences of our past or the moments that we're having that are that profound or traumatic or impactful and learn from them, then each time after that can be a little bit easier, a little more, more to eat, more manageable. And it's true with cash flows and businesses and every experience that we have, we have a chance to learn from it and turn that challenge into an opportunity. And so that's how I spent the time while I was not knowing what to do. It was just documenting and writing and think, you know, and, and it activates the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the problem solving section of the brain. It takes you out of the emotion of that panic and into logic. You know, the brain's telling the hand to write and I'm just writing what things. What did you write? I made lists of things that I had done right, things that I had made, you know, mistakes that I'd made. I, I have some of my writing is in the, is recreated in the book. And then stuff that about what the storm experience was like, I was journaling, you know, I'd write anything to be able to make this experience start to feel like it's getting outside of me so I could start thinking again, because I was in a deep panic, of course. You know, and and really that goes on for a year, right? I mean, it sounds as though I was doing something very conscious and making decisions and blah, blah, blah. But it's not like that when you're in it, right? You're just doing what comes to you. And thankfully, something came to me that was mindful. So when I created the book from this experience, I, I wanted to make sure that I would give people some tools that they could use for those situations that there's a step there. Oh, Christine once wrote about this and I could go do this too. You know, when we're in the midst of a crisis, a distress, you know, a situation that's out of our control, being able to take an action, just one single step can get us one step out of it. So if you don't mind sharing in that book, what do you think is the most critical takeaway for the reader? (laughs) Honestly, it's from the first moment. It's don't go it alone, right? Mm. We don't have to do these things alone. And there's lots of other lessons that I've learned, but the overriding one And it's the thing that has forced me into a discipline because, you know, the truth is we have a loneliness epidemic in this country. I mean, 40% of our population in the U.S. has no one to talk to. 25% of millennials have no friends. And I bet these statistics bear up in other countries too. And so the idea that with the age of social media, we have no one to talk to. I'm a person who has large communities, a sailing community. My, I have a hiking group. I have you know, thousands of social media followers. And those people were not accessible to me at all. Uh, me going home, I had friends on the island, but I didn't lean into any of that. I trusted myself. I thought my skills were fine. I have enough, you know, sur- I've done a lot of things right. And, uh, you know, we, we think as entrepreneurs, it's a very lonely solo journey and that process. But there's plenty of people who blazed that trail before. So relying on them, talking to them, getting, you know, support, having an accountability partner, mentor, coach, those pieces are the difference between surviving and thriving. What about for those people who are just starting out and then 
they don't have the money to hire a coach. What would be your advice? There's a lot of information out there. Like, you know, I, like I gave you an example of my online advisory system mm -hmm. that is designed for people who can't afford to hire me to help them one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. right? But find a structure. There are people who, there's so many tools out there and programs and structure, just like mine. Mine's a 12-month program that gets you from zero to seven figures that it's a do-it-yourself, but you can do it. And it's fed to you in a way that makes it palatable, manageable, not overwhelming. And there's tons of resources. So there's one place to go, but there's lots of others too. And there's other people who've done what you've done. So finding who they are, getting involved in masterminds, being able to get into communities of people that are blazing the same trails you are. Find creative ways to work with the people. Some of the reasons why I've had businesses that I've had is because clients who've wanted the totality of me would offer me, you know, a salary and equity. So I've come in, I have startup clients where I'd have a hybrid structure with fees and equity so they can have access because I think everyone needs to make some investment, but I made myself available in the, in the right circumstances. So there's lots of creative ways. And I learned this from the very beginning is never take no for an answer and always be creative in terms of how to get what you need so that you can get where you want to go. That's a very good point that you work with a lot of startups. So you're taking, you know, like an equity portion and then your fee is, you know, if they thrive, you thrive, you get your return of investment. Yeah. That's like I work in mining and then I receive stock option, right? So basically right, sure. I am part of the company. And then I think that is a really good way when you have an employee or you have, you work with someone, you really want someone to invest in your business and then care for it and then let it grow. That's smart. Very smart. Thank you. <laughs> But that's, you know, it's all about being creative for the entrepreneur to get what they need, right? I know the storm really changed the way you think. How has that changed your view about life? Well, I have this concept I introduce into the book called Becoming a Storm Warrior. Mm -hmm. And I say, don't go it alone, right? And a lot of people might think that sounds reasonable, but how? You know, and I, so I talk about what does it take to become a storm warrior? And I had competency, right? I'm skilled. Mm -hmm. I'm a mariner. I'm mm -hmm. a life, you know, I've been a, a professional rescuer. I have the tools and the, the lists and checklists and all of that. But the piece that I was missing was that willingness to be vulnerable, to recognize that something was coming that was going to be more powerful, bigger that I could not control. And it's the piece that allows us to soften in and move towards asking for help. So a storm warrior recognizes that they are vulnerable first, and then they can go and be of service in their communities and with their clients and their families, and they can take a leadership role by understanding their vulnerability first. And so that's the piece that gets you from being alone to not going it alone, is to recognize your own vulnerability. And that was the biggest change in my life. And it's been amazing, the experiences of coming back to the storm and, you know, different stages of, you know, healing from the PTSD and, yeah, you know, getting off you. the island and getting into what I call the land of plenty, you know, being back in California where nobody's thinking hurricanes, you know, and finding my real tribe, you know, the people that came out of the woodwork to help me really pull the lessons from me and the people that 
wanted to support me in my recovery from this experience and to help me with my book. And I have this big acknowledgement section in my book, just really, you know, naming those, some of those people that were there for me because I committed myself to never weathering a storm like that again. How long did it take you from to move back to California? Oh, well, a couple months. It took a while to get off the island because everything was shut down. No airports, no ferry docks and medical acts were happening, but I was not a medical case. And, you know, I found a place for myself, like any of us can in a category five situation to be of service. You know, that was really my survival mechanism. And it was what helped me come through thriving was to be of service. How has that changed your perspective about money? That's a beautiful question because I'm going to tell you the truth that I think that money in the past, I was more defined. You know, I've made six and seven figures. I've had a large investment portfolios. I've had fancy titles. All of that stuff meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. I was very identified with it. Mm-hmm. And when you experience how fleeting it can all be, how quickly a storm can come and blow it all away. And I'm talking about, you know, a death, a business whatever the thing is that is around, you know, money, it carries so much energy and we have a choice about that. So what it's changed in terms of me is I respect money and I'm very good at managing it. And I know how to help teach people to grow a business well and responsibly and build a solid foundation, but it will not ever have a hold of me the way that it did in the past, because it makes me appreciate you know, my value and what I bring, regardless of my bank account balance and for anybody else too, it's, there's a a kind of freedom that comes from having it all go away. That's a beautiful thing. It's a big relief probably for you. It's, it seems like, you know, it's just like weight off your shoulder that you look at life and money and your business in a very different perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Other than your book, what else are you excited about for 2020 that you want to share? (laughs) Well, let me first say the book title is The Resilient Leader. So hopefully we'll have a link to um, in the story notes on the on this podcast. So I look forward to sharing that with all of you. Mm -hmm. And I have so much going on. It's a very exciting year. I feel as though with the book's completion, I'm putting behind me this whole experience of the last Mm -hmm. two years. So I've been doing a lot of speaking. I want to share with your readers my ebook that I will um, send you. That is the 45 minute challenge to help people again, marketing and re- and revenue focused, but with your skills at cash flow management, it'll be a perfect combination to add to them. So that'll be a free gift to you, to you, the listeners, and then a, a video on marketing strategies and how we all get it wrong. So there's a couple of things that I would be happy to throw in there. I think marketing has always the struggle, you know, one of the big struggle, right? There's so many, I don't know, guru that are teaching the wrong way. And then, you know, for somebody who has like so much experience like you are and have been building like 10 businesses, went through so much in your life, I'm very sure that's going to be like a very good strategy that anybody wants to get their hands on. So Thank Thank you you so much for being here. I appreciate you. 
It's so my pleasure. You are so amazing. I love what you're doing in the world. It's huge, huge, huge value. And everybody should be listening, following you and really taking your advice because it's the most important thing any business owner can learn about is how to handle the cash. That's the only thing that really matters at the end of the day. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here every week at Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women's entrepreneurs. Head on over to kristinashahli.com forward slash Her CEO Journey to subscribe for this podcast. And don't forget to tell other women entrepreneurs that this podcast is available for free in the podcast apps of their choice. Until next time, and let's continue to grow a business that fuels the life that you want to live.